Welcome, everybody. This is Kevin McDonald, executive producer for New Mexico PBS. And this is the New Mexico in Focus podcast edition of the show for Friday, March 27th, 2020. It's been another whirlwind week. We've got a lot of coverage of the COVID-19 outbreak in New Mexico. I want to start by updating you on some news that came out after we taped the show this week. That has to do with public education in New Mexico. The announcement came down Friday morning that school for New Mexico public schools is in effect canceled for the rest of this year. That's really all schools. Uh, No more schools for the rest of this year. Now, they did say that schools are working on a continuous learning plan that should start April 6th or thereabout so that students who are at home will still get some educational opportunities, but there will be no in-person classes for the rest of this school year. So we'll have a lot more about that in the coming days and weeks. I want to kick off this week's show, though, with the other big news of the week, and that was the governor's stay-at-home order, which basically closed all non-essential businesses, basically adding retail to what was already on the list. Uh, And so a lot of big changes there. In addition, on Friday, a big jump in the number of diagnosed COVID-19 cases in New Mexico now up to 191. So lots of impacts of all this. Um, And we want to get started with our virtual line panel. They joined us all again this week by Zoom. So that's why the audio sounds a little bit different. But let's send it over to Gene Grant. The amount of COVID-19 news coming at us all is overwhelming, but a clear place for us to start this week is the governor's stay-at-home order. The depths of this crisis are now real to millions across the country and including us here in New Mexico. There was no one left untouched by this, certainly. It's a heavy subject. We have a great panel to get at this. Joining us now remotely are line regular and attorney Laura Sanchez. Nice to see you on screen. Another regular with us this week is Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR. And we're joined also remotely by Lana Atkinson. She is professor in the UNM Political Science Department. Now, Tom, let me ask you first, you own a business. A lot of tough decisions being made out there by business owners to close their doors due to the governor's order. How have have you handled it there at Garrity Group PR? Well, one of the things we did was uh, about two weeks ago, we moved to a telecommuting environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, and it was very easy to set up. We used some some software through through a, a provider and uh, we're able to get all of our key files remotely. Uh, and then of course, we're already connected by way of, of, of chats, but it's it's definitely, you know, provide new twists mm-hmm. as far as how businesses do business. Um, and, you know, we're fortunate in that, you know, as a professional services company, we're able to, uh, you know, really work with our clients remotely. Um, but we've had some pretty significant impacts as well. Um, you know, so we're, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely a new normal. And I think that looking at how other small businesses have been impacted, whether it be the, you know, really the restaurant industry, uh, the tourism, hospitality industry really have uh, had the script flipped for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's great to see that, uh, you know, there's a lot of aid that is being promised anyway to to really help those, uh, you know, different types of businesses weather this particular storm. My colleague, Matt Grubbs, will be talking with uh, Workforce Solutions manager Bill McCamley a little bit later about some of the things that are going to be set up for businesses here. It's going to be interesting to watch, no doubt. Lana, let me ask you this question as well. The tragic news of the uh, first COVID-19 death we've had here in New Mexico um, certainly wasn't a surprise to anybody, but it still was shocking nonetheless in its, in its own way. Um, 
particularly because he had, as the reporting has come in, he had wanted to get tested and he couldn't. And we're still having some trouble getting folks who want to get tested, tested. It's an issue right now for us, isn't it? it it's something we're going to have to punch through somehow. What's the best way the state should be handling that? It, it, you know, we certainly can't take in everybody who walks in the door or calls who wants to be tested. How do we sort this out at this point? Yeah, we need to have a priority list. And that priority list needs to be a little bigger, I think, than uh, just the CDC requirements that you meet one of these goals, because we're really not understanding at all what that numerator looks like. And that sure would help us, um, you know, think about the trajectory of the virus if we had more information. So not having kits, is, kits uh, to test is a serious issue across the country. And, you know, we passed legislation. I remember uh, Representative Pelosi testing, testing, testing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where, where are the tests? It's a tough one. Laura Sanchez, you know, the idea that you know, we're all physically distancing. That's the new term, not social distancing, but physical distancing, I, I, I'm reading. Um, and now we've got this pressure certainly coming out of the, the White House saying, look, you know, somehow we've got an Easter deadline. But doc, the infamous Dr. Fauci is saying, look, the virus doesn't work on a timetable made by man. It's going to be in its own, <laughs> its own deal. What's the best way here in New Mexico? Is the governor on the right track, regardless of what the federal government wants to do? Are we on the right track here in your gut from everything you've seen from the governor so far? <clears throat> there's, just, there's been so much confusion, I think, out there. And unfortunately, a lot of confusion, even within the White House um, task force that's working on this. Um, I do think that uh, there's no reason to set arbitrary timelines. I think that causes more confusion for people. Obviously, we'd all like for this to be lifted by Easter. Um, and certainly a lot of restaurant workers, people in the um, hospitality industry, a lot of folks in retail would love to get back to work. <clears throat> Excuse me, but you know, I don't, I don't know that we're, I agree with Dr. Fauci. We can't just uh, impose some sort of arbitrary timeline. We have to be um, prudent in this situation. I think the governor's on the right track as far as um, you know, making sure people understand that that this is a very serious issue, and we all need to take um, precautions and, uh, and and do what we can to stay safe. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's interesting is when you asked the question earlier about the gentleman who uh, passed away um, in Eddy County. I, I mean, there's so much confusion even around that because I had heard that he actually had declined yes. um, the coronavirus test at first. Not that it wasn't available to him. You're quite um, right. But I'm hearing a lot of conflicting things too, and. And people even in that area who I know also had heard different things that it had come from a doctor. And then the media said, actually, the doctor didn't have direct contact. So there's just a lot of confusion. And that leads to a lot of fear. Mm -hmm. So I think the best thing that we can do is just be patient, you know, get through the day, do what we can and really be kind to one another. Mm -hmm. Tom, let me ask you the same question roughly about what the president wants to do about getting the economy started again. Look, no one will disagree that you know, the economy going to a very low place is not good for anybody, but death is probably a little bit worse than that if you really want to get down to it. But is there, in fact, a way in your mind, Tom Garrity, to have certain businesses sort of roll back in after a couple of weeks? Or is that just folly to think that we can kind of tiptoe into this thing? Well, you know, the, uh, the, the ordering really should be more focused on, you know, what is what how do we make sure that people get the tests that they need to get? How do we make sure we get the virus under control or to a manageable level of, uh, of eliminating, uh, you know, flattening the curve? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, once those items are addressed, then I think you can go back to saying, okay, well, what does the new normal kind of look like at that point? Um, you know, so 
you know, I think that, you know, looking ahead, sure, you know, a lot of us want to be able to see business, uh, you know, get back on track and, you know, all of us address this recession head on. Mm -hmm. um, but really, you know, we have to make sure that it, we do it in a safe way. So to put, you know, businesses ahead right now, uh, while personally, I would like to see that it's really not a move that would that appears anyway, that would be, you know, conducive with flattening that curve. Of, of infections and people seeking uh, admission into hospitals. Mm -hmm. Lana, let me ask you this about what's been going on on Capitol Hill. We had our Senator uh, Udall uh, mentioning yesterday on the floor that $1.25 billion for state and local governments is going to be out there. New Mexico is going to get its share, and there's going to be monies, of course, for I shouldn't say, of course, I am actually should say gratefully for tribes and other folks who, who might be overlooked otherwise. The early back of the, number, back of the envelope numbers, does this hit you as something that's workable for New Mexico, or is this just a first cut as far as you're concerned? Well, how do the numbers shape up for you as you see them so far? I think that this is just a first cut for the nation. I mean, you can't have the economy go into the bowels that it's gone into and not think that there's gonna to have to be further efforts on the part of the national government to, to resolve the, the issues that are you know, taking place at, at an individual and household level with regard to the economy. Mm -hmm. And you know, how is the state gonna go about delivering that um, to, to the people? Mm -hmm. There's an $8 billion tribal government relief fund to ensure Indian tribes have direct one-stop access to COVID-19 resources. I mean, folks are being taken care of on the front end here, but the implementation is always the tricky part, especially when it comes to uh, uh, non-traditional communities where we, here in New Mexico, of course, we have always have trouble getting monies to those folks. This is a new way of doing this, though. Do you anticipate the state is ready to receive, ready to disperse, all that kind of a thing? Is, is, or, or do you, in your gut, does it feel like we're ready to go with the money that's going to be coming? Well, I, I don't know if we're ready to go, but we're, uh, we, mm -hmm. we certainly have a list of priorities and uh, you know, we know where to head that money. So I think the governor is on track in that way to think about those things and to make those decisions and to get that to people as quick as possible. Mm -hmm. Laura Sanchez, so Jean, please go no, ahead. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. no, no, I was just going to comment on that. I mean, please. one of the one of the scariest, I think, things happening more recently with Navajo Nation is that they're seeing a huge increase in the numbers there, and they're a very rural area, already have trouble with adequate health care, and serious problems in terms of connectivity, in terms of you know being able to access the internet. So the idea of working from home just isn't very conducive with the Navajo Nation. So there's there's also I think a question legally about whether um, the stay-at-home orders that the governor issues actually are applied to Navajo because it's a sovereign, um, it's a sovereign nation. Right. And so uh, I know that the president of Navajo Nation has been very concerned about this. Obviously, made it a big priority and are doing what they can to communicate um, with chapter houses and other members of the nation. But in terms of getting the right resources there, even testing kits, all of that, it becomes a very difficult problem because of how spread out the nation is mm -hmm. and how a lot of the families live in such close quarters that the social distancing can be a real challenge for a lot of families. Good point, so that's Sarah. a huge issue that I know the Navajo Nation is, is dealing with right now. Mm -hmm. We have to leave that there for now. When we come back to the line, the line looks at how and when the state pays for its COVID-19 response. Of course, one of the biggest impacts of the COVID-19 outbreak and the response to try to limit the spread of that disease is on the workforce here in New Mexico. 
Just on Friday, we also learned that there were roughly 32,000 claims of unemployment this week. Just a couple weeks ago, to give you some perspective, that was at about 800. So again, huge issue for the state this week and moving forward. We got uh, Secretary of Workforce Solutions Bill McCamley to join us by Zoom this week. He talked to senior producer Matt Grubbs about everything his office is doing to help all those that have been displaced from work, laid off, hours cut back, anything in between. So let's listen to what uh, Secretary McCamley had to say. NMIF producer Matt Grubbs, I mentioned earlier, speaks with Workforce Solutions Secretary Bill McCamley about the state's expanded response for workers who have been laid off because of coronavirus. Secretary McCamley, we know you are busy. We appreciate your time. Um, when the governor announced that she was expanding the unemployment insurance program, she named three kinds of workers who could seek benefits who perhaps weren't previously able to do that. Um, what are those classes or kinds of workers, and is that where you're seeing the bulk of your new claims? Right. So last Monday, the department issued a new order that will allow people to get on unemployment insurance without having to do what is called a weekly job search. We have waived that requirement. In regular unemployment, uh, you have to be able to show that you've searched for a job during the weeks that you are getting your benefits. Well, the way we're viewing a lot of these hour reductions and layoffs is temporary. And we're hoping that a lot of people can go back to the jobs they had before as soon as this situation kind of starts to go away, right? So what we did was waive those requirements and we've had a lot of people apply and we are trying to be as open and flexible as possible for folks that do apply because we wanna help people get through this situation. Governor Lujan Grisham has asked us to use every tool in our toolbox to be able to help people get through the situation. And if we can help people uh, per perform social distancing, make sure they're staying away from other folks as much as we can, we're doing everything we can to get folks uh, the money that they can get through unemployment so they can do those things and keep us safe and stop people from dying. It sounds like it's, uh, we're looking at folks who have been laid off uh, as a result of a business that's lost uh, a lot of its income due to the impact of COVID-19, um, workers who are self-quarantined um, or, or have to be self-quarantined because of a diagnosis, and then just um, the hour reduction. You know, so if you work you know, 36 hours and you're cut back to, to 25 or 20 or something like that, those folks are eligible as well? They are, uh, if they make less than $461 a week. The maximum benefit is that number, $461. And so if you go, for instance, from making $600 a week and you've worked very steadily over the past 18 months and you get cut to $300 a week, you should be able to apply for what we call partial benefits and get the, the remainder, which would be about $161. And in terms of the question you first asked, where are we seeing the most folks that are applying? It's where you would think. It's the service industry. So folks working previously at hotels or convention centers or restaurants, bars, malls, uh, folks like that that have been asked to uh, not come to work to make sure we keep our social distancing as well as we can. They're the ones that are mostly applying. Uh, though we are seeing some new applications from the oil and gas industry as the the global situation has really affected oil prices and those have started to come down. Okay. Uh, you don't have to be a full-time employee, is that right? Uh, you have to have worked four out of the last five quarters 
and hit certain income levels for those quarters. We do ask people that apply to try to have at least their last four pay stubs available if they have them. That makes life a lot easier on the folks we have that are processing the claims. And we're going to get contact information for you all um, up on our website, uh, NewMexicoInFocus.org. I would imagine you're trying to push people, as, as you internally make the transition to working from home, you're trying to push people to the website as much as possible? Absolutely. So our website is jobs.state.nm.us. Once again, that is jobs.state.nm.us. We are very, very proud of all of our staff here at Workforce Solutions, but specifically our internet technology staff who have kept our website working uh, very strongly throughout this whole situation. You've seen other states around the country where their websites have just simply crashed. That has not happened here. Uh, You can go online and do your initial claim and your weekly certifications online. So we're encouraging everyone to do that if they can. Uh, About 95% of our initial claims so far have come in online and we're we're thinking that's a much better situation than people having to call into our call center, which has been uh, extremely busy these past couple of weeks. So if you can go online, it's better for you because it's more convenient. You can put in a routing number for your bank so you can get a direct deposit and get your benefits faster. And if you can go online, you're going to free up call space for someone who's calling in who can't go online. And we do have some folks around the state that have to call in. So going online, if you can and have the resources to do so, is just better for everybody. Okay. Okay. Um, you mentioned that you've eliminated the work search requirement, um, and that extends for four weeks. Uh, as you've had now roughly a week and a half to kind of settle in to what's happening with COVID-19, does that feel like it's going to be long enough for you? We're not making that assertion right now. We're going to try to get through the next couple of weeks. And when we uh, hit that end of that four weeks, I believe the date is April 10th, we'll start looking at it at the end of that week and make a decision then. But right now, we're just trying to really help as many people as we can, uh, get as much money as we can out the door if they apply and and are eligible for our system. Um, Just from a policy uh, standpoint, uh, is is the thinking, the governor's thinking and your thinking that the economy right now um, simply doesn't have enough jobs to sort of enforce that you must search for a job provision, that it would just sort of be, you know, jumping through hoops? Yeah. And and look, this situation, Matt, is completely unprecedented. No one's ever seen anything like it, either here in the state or nationally, in terms of the amount of people that are filing in the short amount of time. You didn't even see anything come close to that during the Great Recession. And so our thought process is we're basically putting everything on hold as much as we can for the next few weeks so we can get through the situation and keep people alive and keep our healthcare system from being overwhelmed. I think as frustrating as this situation is, that's what we've really got to remember here. It's not only the effects of the virus itself, as we're seeing in other places around the country, are very serious. But if our hospitals and clinics get overrun, uh, all sorts of what we would normally consider regular industries, uh, regular healthcare issues aren't going to be taken care of. As an example, I was talking with some construction folks yesterday and they were saying, hey, we want to get back to work and we want to do what we've normally done. I said, fellas, I understand where you're coming from, but here's the situation. If we don't socially distance, if we don't perform these um, strategies that all the public health people in the country are asking us to do, and you fall down and break a rib, you know, on your job, you're going to go into a hospital and not be able to get into a bed because people could possibly be overflowing with COVID-19 situations. So it's not just the direct 
virus response. So that is extremely serious. It's also the, the secondary effects. We're trying not to overload our healthcare system. If we can be patient, if we can be kind to one another and realize that everyone here in New Mexico is uh, pretty much related to everybody else. We're one big family. I, I like to joke there's only about six degrees of separation in the whole state. Uh, but if we act like we're at our best Thanksgiving dinner all the time, and if we can remember that we're all in this together, this is a team game. Every single one of us has a job to do. and We can be patient and kind and team players. We're going to get through this together. I know you're not unsympathetic to those folks who feel like they have to go to work to get a check. Um, having talked with you uh, enough in the past, I know that's something that resonates with you. Um, but how do you convince people to stay home if they are sick? Well, just look at what's happening in other parts of the world. You look at what's happening in Italy. You look at what's happening in New York. You look at what's happening in some of the other places around the United States where just as of the last few days, we're seeing large spikes in places like Louisiana. This is better for everybody. And we know that it's hard. We know that it is frustrating. And we know that this is not what normally people do. And it's not just the work situation, though you're right, that is a massive factor in how people kind of respond to this. But it's also just we're social creatures. We like doing things together. We like going to the bar. We like going to movies. We like hanging out with our friends and family. Uh, But if we don't practice these techniques that all the public health Folks are telling us to, to make sure we keep six feet, seven feet away from people, that we wash our hands constantly. If we don't do that, it's we're not going to flatten the curve, which is something I've, that most of your viewers have seen. And we're going to see a worse situation if we can make those adjustments to our day to day lives. And that's part of our job in the government is to get as much money out to people as possible to help them through these next few weeks. But if we can do that, we are going to flatten the curve. We are going to see not as great of a effect on our society. And we're going to get be able to get back to normal sooner rather than later with as minimal health effects as we can. If we don't do those things, if we ignore the advice of all our public health people, uh, more people are going to get sick. Unfortunately, more folks are probably going to pass away. We're going to see our healthcare industry overloaded. Um, and we're not going to get back to normal as quickly as possible. So that's really the advice of where our governor's coming from, Governor Lou Hungrisham has been very strong in her message that we are prepared. We are all doing what we need to do. We're not panicking. And if we can get through this uh, here in New Mexico, we're all going to treat each other like family and get through this together. Secretary McCamley, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Another population that has been extremely hard hit by the COVID-19 outbreak are our tribes and pueblos and reservations particularly the Navajo Nation, which has been hit really hard, has had an outbreak and has actually been put on basically shelter in place. The Navajo Reservation closed down to outsiders as they try to get a handle on the situation. Extra challenging, of course, because they already have limited resources, not to mention the geographic challenges, resource challenges that they face. So our correspondent, Antonia Gonzalez of Kiwanak Broadcasting and National Native News, joined us this week, and she had a couple guests by Zoom. First of all, you're going to hear from Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez about the challenges the Navajo Nation is facing and what they're doing to try to um, battle that. As well, we have the National Indian Health Board CEO, Stacy Bolin, on to talk about the health care challenges really across uh, Indian country and what they're keeping an eye on as the situation only gets worse in the coming weeks. 
Amid the coronavirus pandemic, tribal leaders, health advocates and native organizations are putting pressure on the Trump administration and Congress to keep treaty and trust responsibilities to tribes. Across the country, tribes have declared states of emergency due to COVID-19. Most already face chronic federal underfunding for health care and many tribal community members are among the nation's most vulnerable. The Navajo Nation is struggling to control an outbreak of the disease that's infecting tribal members at rates much higher than the surrounding communities. Here is correspondent Antonio Gonzalez with President Jonathan Nez and Stacy Bolin of the National Indian Health Board. Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez, thank you for connecting with New Mexico PBS this afternoon. Hey, Antonia, thank you for having us on, on the show. And the Navajo Nation is one of the largest tribes in the United States with the largest land base. Um, you and your administration took COVID-19 information and news serious from the start. As of Thursday, the nation had reported 69 positive cases. What is the biggest challenge right now facing the Navajo Nation? Well, we have, uh, Antonia, we have a um, shelter-in-place order uh, throughout the Navajo Nation. So <clears throat> we're wanting all our, our Navajo uh, members and residents to, you know, stay at home. I think that's the safest place to be here and also to uh, minimize uh, the spread of COVID-19 coronavirus throughout our Navajo Nation. So uh, right now, the, the biggest concern that we have is getting the needed equipment uh, to our first responders. Uh, and I guess that's like that throughout the country. You know, it's just not Navajo Nation. You know, we, we're trying to get uh, personal protection equipment to uh, those that are um, giving out um, food and necessities to our most vulnerable, which are our elders and our uh, those that are being cared for by uh, healthcare providers. And <clears throat> so we're just trying to do, uh, do with what we have. And we did get some equipment from the um, strategic national stockpile uh, that's coming into the states and coming up into the Navajo Nation. So we appreciate <clears throat> that resource coming in. But, you know, some of the resources from the federal government has yet to reach uh, Indian country and has yet to reach the Navajo Nation. And, you know, that first uh, allocation of dollars, that $8.3 billion, and out of that $8.340 million uh, went to the tribes, to this day, Antonia, we, we haven't get one penny of that. And there's just so many uh, hurdles. And I, I just saw the CDC, that $40 million CDC is saying, uh, the federal government is saying is you got to apply for it as a grant. And <clears throat> we have to do all the paperwork. And the grant is application deadline is in the next week or two weeks. I, I don't quite remember. But, you know, we have to wait for that uh uh, deadline before we even get any of those dollars to the Navajo Nation. and But yet, that first $8.3 billion, a lot of that money has uh, gone to states directly, and, and yet tribes have to uh, apply for that, and there's a pass-through through the CDC or a pass-through through the states, and, you know, it's frustrating. But, you know, I just want everyone to understand that it's there's no difference here. Even the Funds that we get from various uh, federal allocations have to go through the states or the 
programs and departments of the federal government before it comes to tribes. So that needs to be reevaluated. And um, I'm hopeful that our congressional leaders are listening and, and those changes need to happen. We need those resources immediately into Indian country and here on the Navajo Nation. And as you're urging Navajo citizens to stay home, to um, limit the spread of COVID-19, there's a lot of people in the public who are interested in even helping the Navajo Nation. You've closed all the tourist areas and Mm -hmm. you've asked tourists and people who are not, you know, from the Navajo Nation just to not visit at this time. What's your message to the public um, outside of Navajo land? Well, uh, you know, we appreciate all our visitors every year coming to the Navajo Nation to, uh, you know, experience uh, Navajo, experience Navajo people's culture, tradition, and their way of life. And, and, you know, throughout the world today, right now, and throughout the country, it's, it's really no, no time to be traveling. And uh, <clears throat> we're just asking our visitors to please respect the sovereignty of our Navajo Nation, you know, and uh, uh, where we close all our tourism destinations or point of interest throughout uh, our nation. And uh, right now there's, I mean, there's an emergency clear across the country and uh, to limit the spread of COVID-19 everywhere, the best place to be is to be at home. And we just ask our our visitors to, uh, you know, respect our laws and and our authorities here on the Navajo Nation. So, you know, we, we say that with all due respect. We want to bring in Stacy Bolin with the National Indian Health Board. Stacy, your organization has been involved in national discussions about tribes and COVID-19 and also conducted a recent survey. What are you hearing is most important for American Indians and Alaska Natives? Right now, we've heard that uh, there is very little access to personal protective equipment. The uh, N95 uh, masks, gowns, gloves, ventilators uh, for treatment. And that's one of the top things that uh, we're hearing. And can you talk a little bit about how rural American Indian and Alaska Native communities are being hit? Uh, you mean in terms of the incidence and prevalence of the disease? Just as far as what we know when it comes to health disparities among tribes in the country and looking at different um, diseases in the past, what may happen to tribes that don't have uh, access to hospitals or um, have limited health care services? Well, in this particular disease process, what is really frightening is that the top indicators for vulnerabilities to COVID-19 also happen to be the top health disparities of Indian country. For example, the presence of diabetes is always listed as number one for a vulnerability for COVID-19. And then respiratory illness, we understand, you know, of course, tuberculosis rates in Indian country are hundreds of times higher than anywhere else in America. Um, Cardiovascular disease, hypertension, all of the things that Indian country has as their top Um, our top health disparities. And when you align that with the exact exact vulnerabilities that COVID-19 creates, it's really a deadly combination for the tribes. Then you have a health system that is grossly under-resourced and always has been. And um, you have a, a situation where the hospitals in Indian country are 40 years old and older where mainstream hospitals are not older than 10 years old. 
only half of the IHS tribal facilities have surgical capabilities and very little intensive care capabilities. So add on to that the requirement that social distancing occur. How do you socially distance when you have multi-generational families living together in a home? Because that's traditionally what we will do. Um, social distancing is not a native value, but it's something we have to adapt to for the time being until this is behind us. Um, another something else specific to Indian country is when you hear um, CDC and others repeatedly say, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Well, what if you don't have access to clean, safe running water or sanitation facilities as is true of among some of the tribes in New Mexico, certainly in Alaska, Montana, other places in the country. So yes, Indian country does specifically have some very strong vulnerabilities that create almost a perfect storm for this to be devastating to our people. So do tribes feel like they are prepared for COVID-19? No, I don't think so. In the conversations that we have with tribes are, of course, we serve the National Indian Health Board serves all 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States, both American Indian and Alaska Native. And we are in constant communication with people all over the country in Indian country. Tribes do not feel prepared. And tribes, um, tribes are being very creative with how they'd like to be prepared. We just had a board call and one of our members from um, Lummi Nation, who they have just found their 10th uh, person suffering from COVID-19, they want to build uh, an emergency medical facility. Um, you know, they need help to do that. And can you talk a little bit about the push by tribal leaders, health advocates, national native organizations to keep pressure on the Trump administration and Congress to make sure that discussions about COVID-19 and funding include tribal nations? Yes. Well, we've been very strongly advocating uh, around the clock for the last three weeks since this became an apparent crisis waiting to happen and frankly, waiting hours, not days to happen by the time we really realized how bad this would be. Um, we started advocating almost immediately around the, the 1st of March to um, have Congress pay attention to the special and unique circumstances of tribes and to remind Congress of the trust responsibility that exists between the federal government and tribal nations. And, um, you know, we have a lot of friends in Congress. Many of them are in New Mexico. We had several victories in these last three supplemental bills. One that is pending now would bring $1.032 billion into the Indian health system. There would be another $125 million set aside for um, tribes in the CDC and 15 million in the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and the Health Resources and Services Administration. So there are substantial investments just in those columns alone for Indian country. That's the, the bill that's pending right now. Thank you, Stacy Bolin with the National Indian Health Board. Okay, we've talked about the workforce challenges that the COVID-19 outbreak response has caused. That's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the economic hit that New Mexico will be facing for the immediate future. Oil and gas prices plummeting, that hits our coffers hard. There's no doubt that we are headed towards a special session to deal with the economic 
impacts of this situation, but exactly how and when still very much up in the air. Going to turn it back now to our virtual line panel as they discuss some of these major issues. We're back with the line now. Certainly this is a time for action, even as oil prices slump and a COVID-19 caused global recession. New Mexico has an economic cushion from the past couple of years, certainly, but the bills will come due. The question is, at least in part, how soon? A lot of this will require a special session. No one's denying that. There's some question about when to hold it, certainly. Speaker of the House says before the new fiscal year in July. Does that need to happen quickly, or can the state start spending and deal with the cost once it has a better idea, idea what the actual cost is, now also throw in what we're getting from the federal government as well. Should we wait until all those factors are in before we make a move here? Yes, yes, we should wait until those factors are in because we just have to have another session. Right. Recall that when we were losing money in oil, the oil industry before, we had sometimes multiple uh, sessions per year. So I think getting some information before we... Uh, make decisions makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. The question is yeah, how, go ahead, Tom. Being, yeah, being informed is is good. Reactionary is not, but I think that there's an opportunity for you know the, the governor, for the speaker, majority leader to all get together and say, you know what, we are going to have it on such and such a day or such and such time frame. Just have them all get together on that because that will provide some peace of mind that yes, indeed, it is something that's going to be addressed. Right. You know, Laura, interestingly, I saw this quote from uh, House Minority Whip Rod Montoya out of Farmington. He said, there's no, a web-only session wouldn't be legal. We don't have a, a constitutional uh, ability that allows us to, to have this kind of things done remotely. Is, is that going to be a problem at some point? Um, you know, that was an interesting quote from uh, Rod Montoya. Uh, but there, I found Raul Bursiaga's um, comment was interesting as well. Raul is the the head of legislative council, and he's an attorney, very well respected, very knowledgeable about the state law, obviously, and the constitution. And when he was asked, he said, that's a decision above my pay grade, <laughs> which <laughs> right. tells me that, uh, <laughs> that that really is going to come down to the leadership making a judgment call about that. Um, you know, what's interesting is there isn't, a, there isn't a, a specific authority in the constitution that says, yes, you can have a remote session. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have to keep in, in mind that this idea of having remote you know, Zoom access and all that has been a fairly recent thing. Web, you know, remote type of meetings, aside from just phone conferences, but, you know, actually being on video teleconferences, that's a very recent thing. So it's not surprising that the Constitution doesn't permit something like that, provide the authority. The question is, you know, does it prohibit that? Mm -hmm. And there is some information or there, there are some requirements about um, being, you know, providing a majority and, and we've had rules in both houses about being on the floor at a particular time. So I think it's subject to interpretation, but we're living in very extraordinary times right now. Mm -hmm. And if this is an emergency situation, I think that it calls for trying to do what we can to make sure that our leaders can move forward with, um, with making good policy and, and addressing our budget problems That's right. um, without putting their health in, in jeopardy. Well, let's get you know, right. Well, let's get to like, that. Go good. Who was saying something? Well, I agree with that. I think it's really important to understand that, that you know, making policy is a public process. Uh -huh. And how do we go about, sh you know, shedding light on what our legislators are doing during this process is not a trivial thing to consider. That's a good point. I mean, we, the reason we meet is at a public place is so that the public can come and interact with legislators on these critical issues. 
So, you know, we need to think about when we're thinking about that process. How do we go about including the public um, in that? Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. But also, I think that the Zoom capability is also another option. And I'll give an example. The Public Regulation Commission right now, which I deal with on, on a fairly regular basis with my job, um, they've instituted a Zoom, only, um, a Zoom only process for their open meeting. So you literally have the commissioners up on the dais doing their work. You have um, general counsel and chief of staff and then any other staff people presenting at the table. And then you have parties, not just web streaming so that you can listen passively, but they've actually enabled um, a Zoom capability so that parties can actually comment if necessary. So, I mean, it might be, we're talking about a lot more people that might be interested in participating in that way um, with with the legislature, obviously, but I think technology has caught up where we can actually start to figure out how to institute that. And it sounded to me from the articles I mean, especially what Raul Bursiaga said, that the technology is there. It's really a question about whether the legal um, the legal tools are there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not everyone has the technology, I think. You know, not every sure. voter in particular or citizen has access to that technology. So, I mean, I just think it's an important thing for us to consider. And I do think that health is important. So I'm not opposed to moving in that direction for an emergency. But I do think we need to consider how the public can play a part in that. That's a fair well, warning. You know, one of the things though, is that I think Lana brought up early on is that I think that, you know, the platform as far as how it occurs, you know, that's more of a technical issue. But Lana brought up a great point in that, how how are the legislators going to hear from the constituents? Mm-hmm. Um, how are they gonna be able to get that information? And one of the things that I think the governor's office has done a smart thing with is creating this economic rapid response task force, mm-hmm. which is, something that includes economic development, workforce solutions, tourism departments, and they have put out a a questionnaire. Um, I received it through the New Mexico Hospitality Association, just asking small businesses, you know, how they've been impacted, but more importantly, how would you, what types of things would you like to be able to see um, addressed? Not necessarily for the 60 days or for a special session rather, but some of the things that I had just kind of uh, shared with them was to help smaller communities get funding for large private and public sector uh, infrastructure, uh, freeze for small businesses, freeze unemployment insurance assessments at 2019 levels, right. uh, provide the opportunity to delay tax payments, provide a tax credit on small business loan interest paid in 2020. Um, those are just a few of the things, but the fact that they are going out and asking you know, the public what their thoughts are, I think that's a good first step. Mm-hmm. We've got about a minute 20 here on this segment. Let me ask you this, Lana, go to you. I mean, there's going to have to be some some decisions if this thing tracks the way it does. Or you know, We're talking about potentially peeling back raises for state employees, a lot of things that were fundamental to the governor's goals that she came in with. You know, Those are going to be long, hard discussions, it seems to me. That's something that can't be handled in a, in, a, in a two or four day time frame, how long do you think we could have a, a, a special session to hash to hash these things out? I, I could imagine a couple of weeks is not unreasonable. It would seem to me. Hmm. You know, they usually don't go that long. Exactly. So, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of things that go out in advance, and and sort of you know how that's structured by the governor and what they're going to have to do. There's going to be a lot of you know pre decisions, and of course the numbers themselves are going to speak to what we have to do. I mean, right. you know, cutting salaries, I mean, that's uh, that's gotta be on the table uh, given the loss of income that we're seeing. So mm-hmm. I think that those numbers are gonna really clarify that. And I think it's really a tough time for uh, Governor Lujan Grisham because this is exactly 
what Governor Martinez faced year after year, you know, unable to actually provide new funding for any programs. Uh, hopefully that's not a long-term uh, situation for her uh, her uh, term. Mm-hmm. We'll see when. It's going to be when and then how. We'll see how that all shakes out. We're out of time for that one. We'll be back to talk about the implications for the primary elections with this group in just a moment. And of course, other news does go on here in New Mexico despite the COVID-19 outbreak. A story we've been following for quite a while now is groundwater contamination near military bases. This is due to PFAS contaminants, chemicals. There are thousands of them, and they get into your system. They don't break down. They can get into water supplies and travel. And again, there's no real way to clean them up. Our land correspondent, Laura Pascas, is the um, preeminent journalist covering this story. And particularly for us here in a partnership with PBS's Frontline, we've got an investigation, Groundwater War, New Mexico's Toxic Threat, And just this week, she broke news on four additional sites in New Mexico that are at risk of groundwater contamination from PFAS chemicals. We've largely been tracking Holloman Air Force Base and Cannon Air Force Base, where we know these PFAS contaminants have leaked into the groundwater systems. Uh, Four new sites are on a Pentagon list now that are at risk, including White Sands Missile Range. You can read her full reporting on this by going to newmexicoandfocus.org and clicking on Our Land. But we wanted to get a quick debrief with her about some of the high points of what she found. For months, environmental correspondent Laura Pascas has been reporting on the discovery of toxic chemicals known as PFAS in the groundwater near Holloman and Cannon Air Force bases. This week, she broke the news that the Pentagon is looking at four other sites that could be contaminated with those chemicals which don't break down in our bodies or the environment. Laura's work is part of our ongoing investigation in collaboration with PBS Frontline. It's called Groundwater War, New Mexico's Toxic Threat. Once again, here's NMAF senior producer, Matt Grubbs. Laura, thanks for coming in and for doing the six foot thing. We appreciate it. Um, The concern with these chemicals, uh, PFAS, is that they last forever. They get in the water we drink, the water that animals drink. Our body doesn't get rid of them. Um, Also, we don't fully understand the ways in which they harm us. Can you talk about that? Sure. So these are a family of chemicals, thousands and thousands and thousands of chemicals that were invented in the 1930s. They're used in tons of different products, household products, industrial products, firefighting foams, and um, they're they're man-made toxic chemicals. And once they get in you, they're really hard to to get out of your body, unless, of course, you're a breastfeeding woman. Um, You can pass the chemicals onto your child. We know that the chemicals can uh, pass through the placental barrier from a mother to her developing child. Um, These are persistent chemicals um, that we're still studying, but we know that they're linked to a number of different health problems from immune disorders to um, low birth weights to different kinds of cancers. Um, As we look at this, up until this report, the concern was for two locations that you've been looking at, uh, Holloman Air Force Base in Alamogordo and Cannon Air Force Base near Clovis. Uh, The Defense Department now says there could be four more that's right. They came out with a report, um, and the data actually is is current as of September 2019, but the report just came out this month. 
Um, and the Pentagon is now looking at more than 200 additional sites across the entire nation and four here in New Mexico. The um, Army National Guard Armories in Rio Rancho and Roswell, the Army Avian Support Facility in Santa Fe, and White Sands Missile Range. Okay, um, and these are um, existing facilities. They're all still active. Um, um, I've been out to the one, um, the Aviation Support Facility up in Santa Fe. There's actually a new facility on that site. Um, you were just out at the Rio Rancho one the other day, obviously White Sands. Um, are they actively polluting now? Do we know that? So we don't know very much. This report came out. It's a very short report that includes a very long list of facilities that could potentially be contaminating local waters. And so um, the report doesn't give specific details about what activities could have occurred there that would have caused PFAS releases. And um, right now, the spokesman for DOD has been unavailable. I've been trying to reach him. And, you know, obviously, this is a, a crazy time sure. in America. So, you know, it is hard to get a hold of people, but but we just don't know what kinds of activities. You know, I've been trying to think of like what it could be, sort of speculating. It could be that um, maybe firefighting foams had been stored there, um, but we just don't know. Um, it was firefighting foams at Cannon and Holloman that were the culprits, right? That's right. That's right. And um, training in those places, they were able to identify where there were large-scale releases um, and, and, and trace the contamination in the water below to these chemicals. Your reporting so far has pointed out that there's no federal regulatory level, which means the EPA can't go in um, and say, hey, you must stop this. It means the state can't do that. Um, there's a health advisory level, which is sort of the step below a regulation, and it's sort of a voluntary. It's, we know this is dangerous. We think you should do something. We're not telling you what to do. Um, that advisory level is 70 parts per trillion for lifetime exposure. Really difficult to fathom that, to conceive of that. Why should people who live near there, um, live near these four additional sites in Santa Fe and, and White Sands and and Rio Rancho, and I've forgotten the other Roswell. one. Roswell. Roswell, there it is. Um, why should they care? Yeah, so public health experts who um, I've spoken to over the course of reporting on this issue say there is, you don't want any PFAS in you. You don't want 70 parts per trillion over a lifetime, we know that, but you don't want any PFAS in you. And so it's really, um, it's incumbent upon the military and regulators um, to understand that that no one should be drinking water that has any PFAS in it. And so it's really important to think about how we control the pollution and how we control people uh, drinking that water that's potentially contaminated with any amount of PFAS. Um, in fact, the recommendations uh, are just to stop. Try to control that as much as you can, and modeling has shown um, that something like 97% of Americans are likely to have a PFAS concentration in their blood already. That's right, and another study showed that about 6 million Americans are currently drinking water that is above that 70 parts per trillion level that you talked about. That's some serious stuff. Are there other points? We just have about a minute left. Um, other points in the report that you want to point out? Yeah, so Congress did pass in the Defense Authorization Act um, a, a chunk of funding to be doing cleanup and also to be studying communities that have been affected and um, 
and look at how firefighters themselves may have been affected. But in this report that came out this month, the DOD says, in fact, that amount of money that we're setting aside that you estimate for cleanup, even for retrofitting or replacing fire equipment on these facilities, installations, is is it's going to cost much, much more than anybody had estimated before. Laura, thanks for coming in for the briefing. You can read more about Laura's reporting on our website, NewMexicoInFocus.org. You'll just look for the Our Land tab, and that's where we can find all your reporting right now. Thank you, Matt. Thanks. All right, we end the show this week with more on the COVID-19 outbreak in New Mexico. And we're talking now in this segment of the line with our virtual panelists this week about impact on elections. The primary election here in New Mexico is scheduled for June. That may be impacted by stay-at-home or eventually potentially shelter-in-place orders as well. So what are the options for us? Is it mail-in ballots? Is it postponing, even potentially canceling? We wanted to explore options with our group this week. So we'll leave you with that. Uh, Of course, keep track and keep up to date with us on NewMexicoInFocus.org, also on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. These are all great ways we're trying to bring you information. Just search for at NMInFocus for all the latest updates, and we want to hear how things are impacting you and your loved ones. You can reach out to us in any of those ways and let us know as well. We'll be back with you again next Friday. Until then, stay, stay, stay safe, stay healthy, and we will talk to you soon. It's been more than a decade since New Mexico really played a role in picking the presidential nominee for either party. As the coronavirus pandemic pushes back primary elections in state after state, there's a chance the June 2nd primaries here might be more important for Democrats and Republicans. Regardless, New Mexico still has to figure out how to conduct an election in the midst of a public health crisis. Is a mail-in ballot the solution? Lana, obviously I want to toss that first question to you. Is it, is it workable, what you've seen so far? Do we have enough runway before November? I mean, what, what's, all the, what's all the different things we need to take care of here? Well, before November is a pretty big runway, but there are really complications. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have some sort of permanent voter registration list in terms of, so our, the, the quality of our voter registration list is that it has a lot of bad addresses. You okay. know, not, not tons and tons, it's not the majority. majority. You know, 90% are probably good or something like that. Mm-hmm. There's a really decent number that don't. So if you're a state that does a lot of vote by mail, that your list, your list quality is higher than our list quality. Right. So one of the problems that we would have if we wanted to do vote by mail for our, all of our people and just send out a, a vote, a ballot to everyone would be the fact that our our the quality of our voter list isn't as high as it would be if we were an all male state. So that's something that we'd have to deal with. How it, do we is, let me let me ask you a question. Is, is that gap so large that it would call into question the results? Uh, is, it, is it that big of a difference? I mean, it's a, it's a substantial difference if you're sending out mailing addresses. Stuff stuff comes back. You know, yeah. addresses are incomplete. There are things missing. No, I don't think it would jeopardize the election. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be something we'd have to deal with. But I also think we should think about other options. I mean, November's a long time away for the June primary. Certainly ma- increasing uh, vote-by-mail is important. But, you know, perhaps also thinking about ways that stores are using to process, uh, you know, customers do the same thing for voters. Can we set up, you know, opportunities for voters to stand 
you know, six feet of blind. Maybe we even send invitations to voters and say, hey, why don't you come in and vote at this day at this time if you can? And, you know, there are complications to that. But I think we need to think about outside of the box. Huh. You know, uh, people have real concerns in New Mexico about vote by mail and uh, the possibility of fraud in there. So I think that we have to be careful and concerned about um, about those concerns. Mm -hmm. Laura, let's talk about that fraud issue. Is this going to pass muster from, uh, you can't answer for Republicans, certainly, but I'm curious what your thoughts might be. Republicans traditionally are not crazy about things that would allow things to get a little bit loose. Would, would this actually work in, in, in all regards, do you think? I think it's certainly possible. And yeah. um, I mean, I know that Republicans have uh, generally, I mean, I think we all have a concern about voter fraud, but there is sort of a suspicious idea that there's some additional fraud when it comes to um, absentee ballots. Although, you know, when you look at who actually votes um, early, it often is, um, you know, seniors, folks that are traditional voters, and in some cases it skews Republicans. So it actually benefits um, some of the Republican candidates to have people vote early by mail. Um, I do think that Lana has hit on something important about trying to think through lo the logistics of the election um, and maybe imposing some of those um, tactics, some of those uh, strategies that um, uh, grocery stores have imposed about the spacing. And, you know, if you go to the store these days, they have tape on the floor about how far you should be standing before you can get up to the teller. Mm -hmm. um, things like that could work. But I think the problem is that so many of our voters vote on the day of if we're able to use more of the early voting time period to plan some of that. Now, of course, we're at this point about 41 days, 40, 40 days away from the beginning of absentee balloting, which starts on May 5th. That's right. really when you can start to um, receive um, your absentee ballot. So we really don't have enough time to impose anything for the primary short of just, you know, day of logistics and maybe early, early uh, voting. But I think we have plenty of time for November to try to think through some of those things. I do think it's important, though, to think about the absentee board um, and the counting that goes on there. I spent many years as the absentee um, ballot presiding judge. As Lana knows, she was often one of the, the observers there. Um, and, you know, it often is people who are 60 plus and they're retired. That's right. And that's not and they're in very close quarters. Um, and so you don't really want to you can't use those same methods this time around. We're going to have to get creative. But I know the Secretary of State's office is also working with um, the Department of Work Workforce Solutions to try to figure out a way to get folks who have been displaced by this whole quarantine, people who have been in the restaurant, um, restaurant workers and retail uh, workers and others, to try to maybe do some temporary um, absentee ballot counting. Right. That's that's a key point because we don't know who's moving around where at, at this point. We know about New Yorkers leaving New York, Tom, and and you know wanting to come to different places. But absentee ballots are going to be really critical for a lot of us here. But and and Tom, the interest Laura brought up something that, that came to mind for me as well is that is the health and safety of the folks running the actual elections. I, you know, I could see where Lana's coming from here. Maybe you can do it alphabetically if your name starts, your last name starts from A through F. You come in on this day, G through whenever this day, you know, you just sort of break it up. But is, you know, is there, we've got to think of these folks and these elders who brilliantly volunteer for us every election cycle to not mm -hmm. put them in danger. So we've got to factor that in as well, I would imagine. You're thinking the same? Absolutely. You know, mm -hmm. the Secretary Toulouse really has the opportunity to really kind of shape what this election will look like. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, or it's up to her to really kind of set that expectation. Um, what will voting be like? When will results be available? 
um, the sooner that she's able to go ahead and uh, state that expectation, uh, the the better luck that they will have in surviving the criticism. Because everybody, there will be criticism. Uh, but if you set that expectation early on of saying here are what the rules are for the primary, right, uh, and then you you know have you know tweak it accordingly to go into the general election, then that's a win. Uh, for the secretary, and it's also a win for the process, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that we'll have here in New Mexico. Let me finish up with Lana and that very point Tom just made. Could this not be a blessing in disguise in some way, shape or form here that actually pushes us to the next level of how we collect votes here? We've been talking about this for years, be able to use like uh, technology, Lana Atkinson. I mean, maybe this is the moment we get it right and we never go back to the old way. You never know. It's possible. It's it, it's possible. Although I think it's important that you know emergency measures are emergency measures, and that you know how we look at them after the fact is it's important to to reconsider that. You know we want, don't want to make massive changes in our system uh, during an emergency. Again, public discussion is important. Having that open process is important. And I just want to say that you know it it is possible that. Basically, a lot of states have moved their primaries to June 2nd, which is when our primary is. And so there's like a mini Super Tuesday now going on. And it's likely that Biden will not become the nominee until after that election. So it is, you know, we are still, uh, in essence, in the game. And there are lots of statewide and other Democratic offices and Republican offices that people need to vote on. So it is important. Guys, thank you so much for participating in this manner. We always wanted to hear from your opinions, why we have you on the line Your opinions still count, whether you're at home or here at the table. So we'll see you next time around. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. And thanks to you all for making the extra effort this week. So stay safe and stay healthy.